In your lecture in Ottawa, you described this experience that you had sitting on a bus on the way to a Catholic literary conference in the U.S. And you were reading some preparatory articles on the state of Catholic literature. And most of them were focused on the question, why are the great writers of our generation not coming from within the Catholic Church? Why were you irritated by that line of questioning? Oi, um... <laughs> There were, there were a couple of things. I mean, one of them was more minor, and then the other one was kind of what I focused on in my lecture, and which was, I think, ultimately what I was more irritated with. Um, and the minor one was just because I think in a lot of these articles, I felt that there were these shifting goalposts, and and people weren't all talking about exactly the same things or, or defining their terms in the same way. Um, so they just ended up talking past each other, and it was kind of a frustrating debate. Um, but I think in, in a bigger way, um, something that for me was really being missed or, um, or maybe just kind of approached from the wrong direction in the midst of all this, um, was, yeah, I just, I thought it was the wrong line of questioning from, from a Catholic perspective. Um, and I think this is more or less what I, I said in my lecture, but, but for me, the question that breaks my heart daily is, is not why are the great writers of our generation not coming from within the Catholic Church, but um, why are the great writers of my generation not becoming or staying Catholic? Um, which is to say uh, that for me, perhaps this isn't a crisis of craftsmanship so much as a crisis of evangelization. Um, there are incredible writers working in the world today. There's no shortage of talent or dedication or craftsmanship, um, but the reality is that that most of the artists that are that are um, at that elite level, who are who are kind of leading the charge, as it were, um, are not Catholic. Have not responded to the gospel. Um, have maybe left the church, um, and I suspect that in so many cases, uh, this is because they've never heard the message of the gospel presented in a way that they could receive. Um, that's, I don't think it's, it's going on out on a limb to say that. I think, I think that's uh, the reality for most of our culture is that it, it, nobody, very few people um, have heard the gospel proclaimed in, in kind of a way that that's simple and clear and, and that they can, that, that they can respond to. Um, and that meets them where they're at. Um do you think that but, for artists, um, this is going back a little bit to yeah, go for it. transcendentals, go for it. but um, when you talk about the clear proclamation of the gospel, is there a way, you said meeting people where they're at, do artists yeah. need to be met in a unique way because they're artists? You know what? Probably, yes. I mean, I hate I hate to, to kind of overcomplicate things um, because I, I think that sometimes that's, like I, I get very suspicious of my, my own ideas, like if it starts, you know, suggesting that things are overly complicated. But um, I think artists are very, are not just one type of person, first of all. So I shouldn't paint them all with the same brush, which is maybe a good analogy in this case. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think um, for the most part, people who are doing good art um, are people who are, who, who are very deeply thoughtful, um, who, uh, are very sensitive often to uh, injustices and um, hypocrisy and and all of these things and and quite attuned to uh, 
I don't know, the things that, that don't line up in that. Um, so there, I think there, there is a lot that's, that's uh, particular to that kind of um, mindset. Um, and, and which might be, you know, different from, again, not that they, they can't be the same person, but, but different from somebody who has maybe more of a, like an engineering mindset or, or like a, a business mindset or something. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, I think, I think in all gospel proclamation, um, trust kind of is, is the fundamental thing, you know, like it's, it's relational and it's, it's trust. Like if, if, if a person trusts me, um, and, and sees that I understand them and have their best interests in mind, um, then we can have a conversation about the gospel. Um, at different times in their life, they may or may not be especially interested in that. Um, you know, and that's, that's something that is for me to pray about and, 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 uh, and try to discern with the Lord. Um, but, but I think, uh, that question of like, do artists need the gospel presented in a different way? Um, I think each person needs someone who can understand who they are as a person. Um, and the message of the gospel is so universal and, and just in, in a certain way, simple that if I, if I see who someone is and, and how their heart is placed and, and, and how their mind works, um, and how they desire certain things, like how they desire goodness and how they desire beauty and how they desire truth, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't have to be afraid that they don't want God because they do want God. Like they, everybody does. We're made for that. So, so it's just really, it's, it's really a matter of just seeing, um, how, how does this very simple fundamental message of the gospel, um, come into all of these desires that you already have, um, and these ways of seeing the world that you already have, because, you know, it's just, it's a light ultimately to, to illuminate all of those things and, and make them make sense. Um, and, you know, I think in seeing how so many artists are already in love with goodness and in love with um, truth, like in a way, like, you know, maybe, maybe in, in kind of a distorted way, which is not to say that like many Catholics are not in love with it in a kind of distorted way, probably all of us in some way. Um, but, but that these desires are already there, um, very sincerely. Um, I don't think we have to doubt that, that they desire the Lord, they just yeah. desire the gospel. Um, just to quote you one last time on this topic. Yeah, go for it, you said, please. You said, the Great Commission is not go forth and make professional artists out of practicing Catholics, but go forth and make disciples of all nations. Do, yeah. do you think there is a kind of attitude uh, in the church where we think, um, and, and I suppose this is what you were um, reading in those uh, those articles on the bus, but is there an attitude like, okay, let's try to, um, you know, set up these practicing Catholic people as great artists or something um, so that we can evangelize the culture? Um, do you think there's too much emphasis on that or? You know, it's, it's good for, for the church to be sensitive to um, the need for good art and 
and uh, meaningful culture and and all those things um but but i think god is already kind of offering us that um yeah kind of in in that in that uh in the gospel really like in in himself um and and sometimes i think we we forget first of all that first commission that we have as a church um to to go out and and actually share share the gospel with people um it can be kind of frustrating for me sometimes to uh to see sort of uh, forgive me if, if this is kind of coming from more from me than from the people who are saying it but sometimes for me it it, it seems like um kind of a closing off and and um yeah like uh, sort of an us and them kind of thing and not not recognizing that uh those people who are you know part of the secular culture, if you want to call it that, are souls whom Christ died for. And like they, yeah, they're not your enemy. They're not like the the person that you're trying to show that you're better than. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I think maybe that gets lost sometimes in the conversation. Let's switch gears and talk about your writing now. So uh, in addition to being um, a professor and um, and an editor, you're also a writer. And the Ghost Keeper is coming out very soon in May, and I can't wait. I've got my pre-ordered copies on Amazon. Yay! Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting them in the mail. <clears throat> I'm also looking forward to seeing the cover. I the because on Amazon right now it's just like a picture of like the Harper Collins logo. It is. Yeah. I have the cover. Do you? I could send it to you. Whoa! Is it public yeah. now? Or is it? Is it for you know, public consumption? It's um it probably is <laughs> because they put it up on Goodreads already. Oh, did they? Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I assume like it's not secret yeah. um, at this point. They just haven't put it up on the HarperCollins website yet. So I can definitely I can show it to you and okay. you can show other people. Who who chooses that? Like, do you choose the cover? Do you give direction, or do they just pick something because they know that stuff? They I have sell books. <laughs> it's more it's more that like it's more that they pick it and they know how to sell books. I kind of have a veto. So, um, like there was a little bit of back and forth, um, when they showed us cover options. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, they kind of say, Hey, this is the one that the sales team was really excited about and your editors really like it. So unless you have a strong objection, right. <laughs> this is it. This is what we're doing. And, yeah, exactly. But it, the one that they came up with, I am very satisfied with It's It's really lovely. I think. Okay. Well, now I can't wait to see that. Um, oh, but I don't want to spend the whole time talking about the cover of your book. <laughs> The Ghost Keeper. So what is The Ghost Keeper about? The Ghost Keeper uh, is about um, a man named uh, Josef Tobak in Vienna, Austria. Uh, and it takes place mainly in 1930s and 40s, maybe a bit earlier, a bit later as well. Um, and he's uh, a man who looks after the neglected Jewish cemeteries um, of the city. And he, because he's a Jew, is obviously very uh, seriously affected by um, the Anschluss of 1938, when Nazi Germany invades Austria. Uh, and essentially everyone in his immediate family, including himself, um, only escape the country because um, one of his Gentile friends helps them. Um, but this is a friend who also uh, joined the Nazi party, so it's pretty complicated. Um, and then uh, Josef ends up coming back to 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 Vienna after the war, um, and of course, first of all, finds this very transformed city, uh, but also finds his friend who who helped him before the war, um, and is left in a position 
uh, of trying of trying to make sense of everything that happened in the years in between. Uh, that's maybe all a giveaway for now. Sure. Well, so how did you come up with this? Like, how did you decide on this, um, on, on these themes and on, on, I mean, this historical period, this subject matter? Yeah. Uh, I think a big part of it, there's always, I think, multiple things, but a big part of it was um, I lived in Vienna as a child. Um, and one of the cemeteries that's featured in the book uh, was very near to our house. Uh, and it was surrounded by this really high brick wall um, with glass and barbed wire on top. Uh, so as a child, I couldn't really see into it unless uh, one of my parents like held me up to look over the wall. Um, and inside uh, were all of these toppled over gravestones um, with everything kind of covered in vines and looking quite overgrown and neglected. Uh, and my parents, you know, explained to me that this is this Jewish cemetery in our neighborhood. Um, they explained probably a lot of kind of why it's neglected the way it is and and probably some sense of where that fits into the history of Austria, like in the 20th century. Um, but I think I was I was young enough um, and maybe just at the at the moment in my life where I was starting to understand what had happened during the Second World War that um, the image of this graveyard uh, kind of very neglected graveyard, got very conflated with uh, my understanding of the Holocaust, um, which was a weird thing to have because it was a 19th century graveyard. So it was from before that period in time. Um, so as I grew up, I was like, that's really fascinating. It's not a literal connection in a way because those people who are dead there, you know, died long before the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. um, but there was still something that was kind of um, very resonant for me about that image um, and and very deep to kind of reflect on and meditate on. Um, and, and I think as I was looking for food for, for a novel, um, that came up as one very potentially fruitful image um, to begin with uh, or kind of connection to begin with. Wow. Um, and then also, I guess, uh, the book is, is very, very loosely based uh, in terms of plot on the biblical book of Tobit. And that's not announced anywhere in the book, and it won't be obvious, <laughs> but if you are listening to this podcast, then you can <laughs> figure that out. And if you know where to find the book of Tobit. <laughs> exactly, yes, not in all Bibles. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, I mean, uh, just I'm thinking back to what you said about vocation. I mean, this this is very much a story that's come from within you. Uh, I mean, it's it's been there for, it sounds like, a long time and it's uh so, yeah. it's developed and uh, evolved and now it's um it's going to be published can you tell us a little bit about the process of actually um i mean taking these reflections and meditations and putting them down on paper yeah yeah um it was a long process and like so beautiful and and wonderful but but also really really hard um like i i think i i started the very first version of this um in 2012 probably and now it's 2018 when it's being published so that's kind of the timeline um i started it when i was at ubc um doing my mfa in creative writing um and i don't think i would have attempted it if i didn't have the supervisor i had um who was a, a writer named ria tregobov um and she first of all had really great insight into the aesthetics that i was sort of interested in um, but she was also very familiar with the subject matter and um, had read 
and I think edited as well, like lots of uh, kind of like, you know, Holocaust survivor memoirs or, or things related to that. So she was very, very familiar with that. And, and I trusted her to tell me if I was going off the rails or like if I wasn't up to the task. Um, and she didn't. She really encouraged me and, and seemed to be really interested in it. So, um, yeah, I, would, I don't think I would have done it without, without her there. Um, I had a kind of a version of it finished after UBC, but it still needed a lot of work, um, which was fine. Like I, I moved to Sudbury. I, I worked on it by myself for a while. Um, it was, it was in some ways really hard. Like there was a point when I realized that, um, I had to change the ending and by, by the ending, I mean like the last 150 pages basically mm. were just like needed to be deleted and replaced. Oh my goodness. Yeah, wow. so that was like, <laughs> you know, recognizing that was sort of a, oh, okay, like, do I want to do this? Is it worth it? Kind of moment. Wow. And there were there were a lot of those, like a lot of moments where it was clear that the next step was going to be really hard. And I'd already done a lot of work. And it was, you know, kind of like, is it worth it? Or is it, you know, kind of pack it in and, and do something else? And, and it was worth it. And, and I think I'm so grateful that like, kind of almost from the very beginning of this project, um, it was clear that this is this was something special and worth my time um and i got to see that it was trying to express something very real and good uh the more i worked on it it was just it was really hard because it was it was ambitious i think and it was um trying to express something very deep in me um and it took a lot of digging to get that right um but it was wonderful too like it's such a gift to be able to do that uh and yeah being in the midst of the writing even when it's kind of monumental and, and intimidating is just the best thing it's yeah it's just the best you said, um, I mean, you said a little bit about what the story is actually about without giving away too much, but I mean, right. I mean, it's clear from what, what you've shared that there, there's, you know, there's big, um, I think probably metaphysical and ethical questions that come through here. Um, yeah. so what was it like working with your editors? Um, I mean, I suspect that the material is also religious to some extent, um, considering your, uh, your main character. <laughs> really good. Really good. Um, yeah, I, I can only speak from my own experience, I guess, but um, my editor, as far as I'm aware, is not a man of faith, I'm pretty sure. But um, he, he he got excited about the things he was supposed to get excited about. I mean, there's there's a moment, uh, I think I mentioned this in, in uh, the lecture that I gave fairly early on in the novel, which is kind of, um, for, the, for the protagonist, the moment when, uh, like, ultimately he really realizes that he believes that there is a God, which is not necessarily what his family believes uh, or what um, a lot of the people around him believe. Uh, and it's like a very fundamental moment for him. Um, and I remember my editor giving me notes on that scene and it wasn't the first time he read it. It was like, you know, the second or third time he read it or something. And he's like notes saying like, wait, wait, this is a really important scene. Um, you know, like make sure that like the reader gets that, you know, like don't let them read through the scene without getting what happened for the character. And he was, you know, very adamant about that, which was, I mean, so gratifying as a writer that your your editor gets it basically, like what's what's important about the scene. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't important to him because he shared that belief necessarily. I mean, maybe he did. He never expressed that to me. But um, but I think it was important to him because he saw that it was important to the character and to the story. Um, and and that gives me a lot of hope. I think. Um, both in terms of, um, you know, just writers of faith operating in a secular publishing world, um, but also, you know, just in terms of, of uh, communicating 
the possibility of faith to somebody who, you know, that's not maybe their personal belief at the moment or, or whatever. Um, that I think if, if a person can see that this is important to the character that I care about and is being dealt with honestly in terms of the psychology of it and um, and all that, then then I'm willing to to go with you, I guess, into this and, um, yeah, be interested and be invested in these things that I wouldn't necessarily be invested in just, you know, on my own, I guess. What's it like waiting for this to come out in May? <laughs> um, kind of surreal. Like it doesn't, it doesn't quite feel real yet, even though I have a cover and, <laughs> and, you know, it's announced and all of that stuff. It still feels a little bit surreal and maybe like I made it up. Um, but it is real and, and it's going to be really amazing. I think, um, I think, I think it might also be really nerve wracking. Uh, and maybe that's kind of what I'm not letting myself feel yet. Yeah. Um, there's probably going to be a lot of different emotions involved. And I have, I have some writing mentors who have told me that and said, you know, it's okay if you don't feel happy all the time about it, you probably like just be feeling a lot of emotions and they come out in weird ways. Um, but, but it's amazing. Like this is, like I've written my whole life. I've, I've always known that I wanted to, to be an author and, and have books and, and it's here, it's happening. So like, it's, it's amazing in a way. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's just incredible. Um, and I hope I get to be kind of fully emotionally present for that, uh, and not kind of hiding from my feelings. Cause I think it, it will be emotional in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of trying to keep myself, uh, a little bit distracted by, by writing a new book. So yeah, I was going to ask you when, or, or have you started yeah. writing the next one yet already? <laughs> I have, I have, I'm at the very early stages of the next one. So I don't know if I'm brave enough to talk about it, but, but we'll, uh, we'll get you back on after, okay. uh, yeah, we'll get you back on later when, when that one's added at the <laughs> next stage, whenever that awesome. is. Um, so the final topic I want to just talk about briefly is reading. So, I mean, the yeah. CCO Reads podcast, we love to talk about anything that has to do with reading, writing, whatever. Yep. Um, but in your lecture, you actually said, you said uh, that you talked about the importance of reading and you said you wish that we could do a better job of fostering a culture of reading in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. um, and that reading is the apprenticeship for writing. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I mean, not all readers are going to feel compelled to respond to their reading and writing. Mm -hmm. But aside from that relationship, what? why do you think reading is so important? Like, what is the, why do we need to foster a healthy culture of, of reading in the church? I think, I think reading is very closely linked to uh, listening reflecting, imagining, and, and probably as well in some ways to prayer. Um, but I, I think like reading is, it's, it's like drinking very deeply of somebody else's reflections, uh, which is in a way like having like a really, really good conversation with someone. Um, like even if it's somebody you disagree with, but, but you trust each other enough that, that say like, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to everything that this person has to say and, and consider it very carefully and charitably. Um, and I think that, you know, if we, if we're able to train ourselves to do that, first of all, um, we can have much, much more productive, uh, a much more productive and interesting intellectual life, I think, first of all. Um, but then it's, it's also, I think one of these like really, really wonderful and mysterious human things to read, um, 
Like it's so uniquely human, I think. Um, but, and it connects you like not just across space with like, you know, other people in your generation, but like across time as well. Like, like somebody 300 years ago or 3000 years ago, even. Um, and, and that person can like, you know, a book and maybe a soul behind it, like feels like it becomes a friend pretty much. Um, and I don't think you can quantify the value of that. It, it kind of just makes me sad for the people who don't see what they're missing. Like it's, it's, it's food for the journey in a really w- real way. I think it's like, you know, there's something in that that speaks of, I think, like the communion of the saints almost in a way, like that having this uh, ability to be near someone else in that way. Um, and I think also reading teaches us to slow down and chew on things and not just look for uh, the quick answer or the shortcut to, you know, what am I supposed to get from this book? Just tell me I want what I'm supposed to get and then I'll be done with the book and I can put it away. Um which I think goes along with like learning to contemplate things instead of wanting to quickly dissect them and then walk away. Um, and I think, you know, we need to learn to do that in so many things in life. I mean, maybe with everything. Um, and that's how we begin to find God in everything. Like if I, if I could tell if, you know, if you, if instead of, of asking a student to read a poem, I could just tell them like, okay, well, this is what you're supposed to get from the poem. Then there'd be no point to the poem. There's no point to the poem existing if I can just sort of explain, you know, everything that they're supposed to get from it. Um, and I think similarly, like if, if I was, if I could just sort of give you a shortcut to everything that you're supposed to get from say, like contemplating the cross, mm-hmm. then, then you wouldn't have to contemplate it. But the fact is we do like for a lifetime we do have to contemplate these things. And, yeah. and, and, uh, and I think reading in a way maybe is, is part of, uh, teaching ourselves that that is, that that's important. And that's part of being human. Um, one of the books that I've been really influenced by is, uh, Alan Jacobs book, the pleasures of reading in an age of distraction. Have you read that? I know you're familiar with Jacobs, but I love read. Alan Jacobs. I actually haven't read that one. No, no, it's, it's short and it's, it's really easy. I've, I tried reading the theology of reading and it's like, oh man, this is actually going to be work, but it, the pleasures of reading the, is very okay. delightful and pleasurable. Um, but the, this idea of the, of, uh, of an age of distraction, do you find mm-hmm. that, that, um, that reading is more difficult these days than, um, not that you were alive 50 years ago, but, um, <laughs> do you think yeah. there are unique challenges readers face today because of whatever the, the unique distractions that exist in our time? I mean, again, I, as you say, I wasn't alive 50 years ago or a hundred years ago and I can only imagine, I guess, but, um, but I mean, even from talking to friends, I think, who have been away from reading books for a while and who want to come back, um, like, I think they see that it, it's, you kind of have to get yourself back into it. And, um, and it feels like work at first and it feels like maybe, um, like it's hard to get through a whole book or, or like sustain myself for a whole book. Um, and I, I mean, perhaps that is that we've, we've haven't we're out of training in a way Mm. you know to to sit with something that long um yeah um and and maybe it's maybe that is a helpful way to think about it because you know like if you go for a run and you haven't been running for years and your ambition is like i'm going to go run 10k right now Mm. then you're not going to be able to and it's going to be awful and you know like i hate running i'm gonna fail (laughs) yeah (laughs) and you're never gonna try again yeah exactly so i think i think um maybe maybe to be merciful on ourselves a little bit in that way and say like it's it is really good 
I think, and worthwhile to have this practice of reading and reading things that are not super easy um, and at least working up towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, if it's hard or if you don't get it right off the bat, that's not, that doesn't mean that you don't, you're not made for reading or you're not as smart or, or anything like that. It, it is probably just that you're out of training in a little way, yeah. like you can work up to it. Yeah. He says, uh, Jacob says, you should read what delights you at least most of the time. And (laughs) quoting Rudyard Kipling or somebody, yeah, I think it's Kipling. He says, um, you know, uh, you reserve those other books for the high holidays of the spirit. Uh, That's amazing. Oh, it's so good. He said, it's like not, not, um, oh, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but like there's, there's certain, you know, this, the, the mood has to overtake us when we, when to read something really challenging. Um, so we, we need to just the rest of the time, you know, maybe it's, it's whatever, any old Wednesday, like poetry. I think he says poetry isn't for any old Wednesday or something like that. (laughs) That's so lovely. And I love Alan Jacobs. Um, I think that is something that some readers that I, I, I really lament in on behalf of some people is I think they, they sort of look at reading as like eating your vegetables in a way. He uses that exact. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, maybe somebody said that to me and I got it from him, but yeah, but like it's, it's, um, I should do this because it's good for me. Um, and not because I love it. And I think, you should do it first because you love it and don't be, don't feel guilty about reading books that are not the classics because they're your faves for now. And I think the more that you, the more that you develop like a real love for those, those other books, like the easier it'll be to love the classics when they come to you in the end. Right on. Natalie, thank you so much for all your time today. No problem, Dan. It was a pleasure. Great. I want to um, I want to promote some of your things here. So first, the Ghost Keeper, which we've talked about, is available for pre-ordering on Amazon, um, and uh, that'll be released in May. And I can't wait to see the cover on Goodreads, which I'm going to do as soon as we hang up here. Um, if you'd like to uh, check out the literary magazine we've referred to, uh, Dappled Things, you can go to dappledthings.org. Natalie is the fiction editor there. There's poetry and fiction and uh, nonfiction, I believe. Yep, there's essays, essays so. and reviews. So you could check that out. Um, also check out Pied Beauty, which is um, the poem from which Dappled Things gets its name by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Natalie introduced that to me a while ago, and I, I've really enjoyed that poem, Pied Beauty. You can read it aloud. And uh, if you want to connect with Natalie directly, you can check out you can check her out on Twitter at Natalie underscore moral. That's her Twitter handle, um, and you can send her a message and tell her how awesome she is and how much you liked her book. (laughs) Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed the show, we'd be grateful if you'd like, comment, and share on social media. To find out more about CCO Reads, you can visit our blog, ccoreads.wordpress.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Live the Books You Love. If you'd like to hear other episodes of the CCO Reads podcast, you can find us on SoundCloud. The music that you're hearing on the podcast is by Claymere, one of Saskatoon's up-and-coming new artists. You can check out his entire album called Waiting on the Sun, and that's on facebook.com slash Claymere, C-L-A-Y-M-E-R-E. The track that you're hearing is called In the Silence.